Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jenny, your host of Red Room, or should I say Boo, because it is spooky month. If you're unaware, every single October on Red Room, we dedicate the whole month to be a little bit extra spooky. Of course, Red Room in general, we talk about true crime, unsolved mysteries, and some creepy stuff all the time, the darker side of life, you know. And if you are into Red Room, I'm going to presume you're into Halloween. We just like to keep things a little bit more haunted, spooky, whatever else vibes for October, just to get in the festive spirit, you know what I mean? So in honour of Spooky Month, I have decided to release this episode from my vaults, okay, from my witch's lair. And this is the episode from October 2022 called Bewitched, Bothered and on trial and you guessed it it is all about the history of witch hunting the Scottish witch craze the Pendle witch trials the Salem witch trials I mean you probably have seen the meme go around on TikTok lately that's you know asking men do they how much they think about the Roman Empire and I also saw someone make the comparison that for women it's the witch trials and I can't help but agree I think about the witch trials a lot. As someone who grew up on Sabrina the Teenage Witch and I also read all these books about some little witch woman and I can't remember her name but I loved, I've always just loved a witch, you know, who doesn't love a good witch? People with taste like witches, people with taste dressed up as witches for Halloween, okay? This is just how my mind categorises people but even if you're not into witches you will be if you listen to this episode. As I mentioned over on Patreon for the month of October we dedicate the month so if you want weekly episodes that might get you in the festive spirit you can head on over there everything will be linked below other than the spooky episodes for October we obviously do you know dedicated episodes to true crime unsolved mysteries conspiracy theories anything that goes on the darker side of life we cover it I'm going to leave you with this episode I hope you enjoy it do vote in the polls below give me a little little review you know I'll talk to you in a couple weeks for hopefully another spooky episode So let's talk a little bit about the history of witch hunting, because witch hunting is very separate to the witch trials. Witch trials were very specific, right? They were like women being put on trial for being a witch. Witch hunting has a bit of a longer history than the witch trials themselves. So in Christianity, right, sorcery obviously was associated with heresy and apostasy, and it was viewed as evil. You know, if you were seen as doing anything that could be seen as beyond the realms of Christianity, you were 
a sorcerer and probably in cahoots with the devil himself. And even among Catholics and Protestants and other like secular leaderships in European in the like the late medieval and early modern period, the fears about witchcraft began to rise. Um, and it sometimes led to large scale witch hunts. As witch hunting began to rise, so did the witch hunter. And there was famous witch hunters that were basically kind of charlatans, like snake oil merchants. And like, because they would pay you, like they, they would pay these men to come into their town and like positively identify witches. And they were paid like, say, I think it was like three shillings per witch, which apparently was like a month's salary. So like, imagine getting like, I don't know, like what, three or four grand. <laughs> <laughs> for like just going she's a witch something that really influenced this was this book right it was written in 1486 and it was called the hammer of the witches now that is a direct translation because the name i think is in latin and i i couldn't be putting that in there guys like you know you don't need me butchering latin for like the millionth time but it was written by two monks i believe and it was so influential because it outlined basically how to identify witches and it alleged what they got up to like so some of the examples of what they said like a witch gets up to is sexual relations with the devil a pact entering into with the devil aerial flight for the purpose usually of attending an assembly um, of witches presided over by satan himself the practice of maleficent magic and the slaughter of babies all of these things i'm like oh my god cue it on like I'm sorry they were the early QAnon so the book also claimed that torture was the most acceptable way to identify a witch and it really laid the grounds for what was to come in the next like three four hundred years it put a stress on accusing women surprise surprise and it argues that women are basically more susceptible to demonic temptations because we're the weaker sex we can't think for ourselves girls as we all know it says women are prone to believing and because the demon basically seeks to corrupt faith he assails them in particular they also have a temperament towards flux and loose tongues (laughs) he's not wrong they are defective in all the powers of both soul and body and it's stated that women are basically just in general more lustful than men so we are more likely to be corrupted by Mr. Satan laying the grounds for the misogyny to come so at the time of its publication heretics were basically frequently sentenced to being burned at the stake Uh, this was the go-to punishment for heretics and being a witch, as we said earlier, sorcery was equal to heresy. So this is where the 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 tradition, shall we say, for want of a better word, comes from for burning, burn the witch, you know? So let's also talk a little bit how, um, and we're, this is like laying the grounds for what's to come, okay? Because I'm going to be mentioning a lot of these things in the trials that I'm going to discuss. And um, I think this is just a good little bit of background. So identifying a witch, because it really didn't change that much. Like this is 1486 and we're going to go all the way up to 1692. So we have a long, long way. We're like, that's, you know, what's that, over 100 years? 1486, 1586, 200 years. <laughs> There's my math gone out of the brain. Like, 200 years where we use the same diagnosis. Think of anything else that we used for the same for 200 years. Like, that's crazy. So, how you identify a witch was some of the following. These are some of the ways, not all of them, but some of them. Number one, 
the mark of the devil. So this was something that it was a, a wide belief that witches had. And the mark of a devil could actually be anything. It could be a mole. I'm gone already. Fucking huge one on my face. A scar, a birthmark. And how, not only were they like, oh, it's the mark of the devil. How they found out whether it was the mark of the devil is they did something called a prick test. So they would prick at these marks on your body. And if one of them didn't bleed, then it was thought to be the mark of the devil because the idea was that like, I don't know what the fucking idea was. It's like the devil would mark you and give you some sort of superhuman, like you can't feel pain on this tiny spot in your body. But look, we're talking medieval times, right? There's not a lot of logic floating around. Speaking of floating, floating in water. So this is a real famous one. What They would do this water test where like, I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just absurd. To see if you were a witch. So they, they shout out, Jenny's a witch. So they bring you over to a lake or a body of water and they literally just dunk you in, like not like walk you in, they throw you in. If you floated, you were a witch because it's the belief that like, it's almost like water is repelling you, almost like it's holy water. But if you didn't know how to swim and you sank, then it was like, oh, she's not a witch, but like you probably died because you're not many people could swim back then like so that was a real famous one I remember hearing about that one in school another one was having a familiar so having a pet apparently witch vibes so if you were seen often with like the same pet like a cat or a dog or a weasel or it can even be horses in some regards they could be your familiar which means that like the devil is shape-shifting and kind of like you know keeping beside you other characteristics in include and are not limited to women without families, unmarried women, women who are just seen as kind of odd or combative or lived outside of the margins of what they felt to be normal and people who are suspected of immoral behaviours like abortion or sex work or just being too smart, being loudmouthed. I think I, I'm like tick, 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 ticking all the boxes. Um, in 1656, a woman was actually hanged for witchcraft for having, and I quote, more wit than her neighbours. So we're talking like this is towards the end of the witch craze, but like this is how crazy it got. Obviously, there were also some men who were accused of witchcraft, but most of these were either gay or suspected to be gay or, and we'll see this later, a lot of the like claiming someone's a witch also came from infighting, gossiping, resentment, um, all of those very low vibrational things, but that people are susceptible to, right? Especially in these small towns. So we think of witches, as I mentioned earlier, often being burnt at the stake and they were burnt at the stake for a period of time. But most of them were hanged and then their bodies were burned. So this idea was that like if you just killed a witch, she could still come back in some way through sorcery to the mortal world. But if you burned her body, it would mean that she could not come back to the mortal world. So although there is that link with the heresy punishment which was real and some women and men and people and everything else were burnt at the stake absolutely it was not the most common way which I thought was a funny kind of um Mandela effect like I really really thought that everyone in every witch trial was burnt at the stake like you just hear burn the witch burn the witch but there you go so let's talk about our first our first one 
our first witch craze or not the first but one of the first and one like this one blew my mind guys so let's talk about the scottish witch craze of 1590 the witchcraft act is something we need to discuss very briefly And this was an act brought in in 1563 and it resulted in a century and a half of witch hunts throughout Scotland. Witch hunts kind of took place a lot of the time uh, during a a period of upheaval or war or famine or disease. And this really interested me because when you look at satanic panic, when you look at QAnon, when you look at when the public starts to do these kind of strange I mean the term witch hunt is you know a a synonymous term with this for a reason when we do this it's usually at a point where I, I don't know it's like we're divided anyway maybe we're like looking to almost bond together over being like there's the enemy or because like the enemy or like we're so frustrated with how life is panning out for us we turn on each other right? The powers that be, they they make us turn on each other. Or we're just looking for excuses to blame people who were already probably bad. Like when you look at QAnon, not all of it, but a lot of it is frustration at the political system. I'm not saying they're pointing their fingers in the right direction, um, but you know, there is that idea. And I'm listening to that podcast that I I put up was one of the recommends recently called Hoaxed. Um, If you missed that, I would definitely recommend going back and listen to it. I think there's only three episodes out now, but it's so fucking interesting. It's about a satanic panic that happened in the UK. Um, And it's just there's so many parallels between this, but that's just a little caveat. So the main phases of the witch craze in Scotland were in the late 1620s, um, but also the 1640s and 1660s. So there was kind of these periods of time where it was happening. In the late 16th and 17th centuries in Scotland, between three and four thousand people were tortured and executed as witches. Keep that in mind when we talk about the next few witch trials, the ones that you probably think, and I thought, were the most deadly. The methods of torture that they would use on these women were absolutely abhorrent, as I'm sure you can imagine. Something called a thumbscrew was used, um, branks, which is like an iron muzzle, there's witches' collars, and most of those who were accused are, guess it, surprise, surprise, it was women. So spinsters and widows were usually people who were kind of attacked or poor women, women living on, as I said, the kind of margins of society, people who weren't like happily married with a nice little plot of land, they were beggars, they were sex workers, they were uh, older women, women without children, all the rest. And most of these women had no means to support themselves or be able to defend themselves. They often had a local reputation for working with herbal remedies and folk medicine and healing. So I think we spoke about that, that there was in a lot of, especially in Scotland, and there was a history of this in Ireland too, um, and in the UK, of course, where the Celts were, where people would work with this kind of like herbal medicine um, and when Christianity came in to the country it was portrayed as something that was satanic or sorcery or whatever else because in their mind you just pray if you prayed enough and if you went to church enough you weren't going to get sick anyway so these women who were people would actually still go to them for help but it was seen as sorcery interesting though so the North Berwick 
witch trials were the first major trials in Scotland. And we're going to talk about them for a second because um, many followed and they kind of, these, these Northbury trials kind of lay the grounds for them between three and 4,000 people were taken, which is insane, between 1560 and 1700 or thereabouts. So King James VI, it all starts with the monarchy. <laughs> the monarchy and Christianity, guys. So King James of Scotland was sailing to Copenhagen because he wanted to marry his bay Princess Anne of Denmark. And when he was sailing, a severe coastal storm forced him to land in Norway and take refuge for several weeks. So he was getting blue balled, okay? He can't accept that it's the weather because he's a spoiled, spoiled king and he blamed it on witchcraft. Now, he was really into witchcraft, as was his mom, but this really brewed the, his obsession with eliminating witchcraft. He became so obsessed with the idea of witchcraft being like really present and all the rest, he wrote a book that was called Demonology and it endorsed witch hunting. And this really kicked shit off. So we had the Witch Act. It's really starting to kick off in Scotland. The first woman to fall victim is a woman called Jilly Duncan. Jilly, anyway, was accused of using healing cures and she was subject to crazy torture. So this is one of these women who was on the fringes of society. She was poor. She had little recourse to a fair hearing. She, as I said, didn't have a lot going for her. And she was just working, not even working as a healer, but she was known to be like a little healer, like brewing up some little potions, leave her alone. Jilly was arrested and she was tortured because remember this witch act and all the rest and King James's book basically said like that the best way to find out if someone is a witch and the only way is torture. So they use these things called pillywinks that we talked up before um, called thumb screws on her fingers, which would basically gradually crush her fingers. Uh-huh. They also use something called a binding rope around her head, which, which gradually crushed it by wrenching. Uh-huh. And despite the torture, Jilly wouldn't confess to anything. And when she was asked to name others, she refused. So she stood her ground for a long, long time. This is when one of the witch hunters set about to look for the devil's mark on her. And she was stripped naked, shaved and subjected to an invasive full body examination. Eventually he found it. Like, of course, you're going to find something on someone's body. This was basically the end for Jilly. And she was sleep deprived. She was tortured, humiliated, broken down, and she confessed. Now, she tried to retract her confession later on. I mean, she was like, oh my God, why did I confess to that? And it is such a funny thing, you know, we, we hear of these false confessions all the time. And I think our human human brains just go to like, why would you confess to something you haven't done? But it happens all the time. Whether you're being tortured or just questioned at length, they break you down. Like it's a fascinating, fascinating thing because I'm even like, how could you confess to being like a fucking witch when you're not one? Like what? But have you ever been around a bully? Have you ever had someone break you down so much and make you feel like you are the worst person and it was your fault? Like it's basically just extreme gaslighting and you can confess to shit because you might feel like it'll make it go away. You know, maybe she thought, okay, maybe if I confess, they'll just fucking leave me alone. 
However, unfortunately, uh, she was executed on the 4th of December 1591 in Edinburgh. She endured, as I said, sleep deprivation, isolation and a really cruel and sustained torture. So after this, it basically kicked it all off because they got their girl, they found the mark, they tortured her, she admitted to it and they killed her. And in total, 70 people were accused of witchcraft, including several members of Scottish nobility. Now, it's not known exactly how many people were killed, but we can safe to say that the majority of those 70 people were. And these events had a hugely profound effect um, on the culture. And it's actually rumoured to be what inspired the play Macbeth. So later on in 1597... A whole family in Scotland was embroiled in a witch hunt. It started with this woman called Jeanette Wishart and she faced accusations of witchcraft by her neighbours and servants and even her son-in-law. Three people who all probably have a bean their bonnet about you, like your son-in-law and then like your servants and the neighbours. Please, like don't take, don't take their opinion on me. The accusations covered like decades believed of wrongdoing. So this was like a, an actual evidence of when someone was just being like, oh, here we go. That one, Jeanette, we are getting her. They even described her like shape-shifting and all sorts of sorcery. Then her son faced accusations, which focused on something called the Witch's Sabbath, which is basically a gathering of witches where they worship the devil. By the time that Jeanette was being accused, other women in the town were being accused of witchcraft as well. So it's interesting, and you'll see this play out in some of the other witch trials we're going to talk about, where sometimes people could say they were bewitched and you could be suspected of witchcraft, but they wouldn't think that you are a witch. They think that you have been bewitched by a witch. Do you get what I mean? Um, And in this case, a lot of people who were accused of witchcraft would start like pointing the fingers at other women in the hopes that they would be seen as bewitched, not witches. So these women in the town were confessing left, right and centre and they named her son Thomas as the leader of a Sabbath held at Aberdeen's Market Cross and he was branded as an active accomplice of his mother. Both were burned at the stake. So her husband who was a stabler called John and their three daughters also faced accusations but they were only convicted of associating with known witches and um, their own family members obviously they didn't really have a choice and they were banished from Aberdeen so they kind of got off easy but like their mom and their brother were burnt at the stake so I don't know about that. The last prosecution of witchcraft in Scotland was 1727 so 16 something didn't we start off in the 1500s? 1563 all the way up to 1727 like that's crazy and it was a place called Dornock uh, a woman called Janet Horn's daughter was allegedly seen transformed into a pony and shod by the devil which made the girl ever lame both in hands and feet and then Janet was seen riding her daughter like a pony both of them were imprisoned the daughter and the mom, and they were condemned. Thankfully, the daughter escaped from prison. There's a lot of escapes from prison, which, you know, I guess that's the uh, the only positive about being in some sort of horrific medieval prison. And Janet was the last person in the British Isles to be executed for witchcraft. We're done with Scotland for now, but it kind of lays the foundation of really just how crazy things can get 
so quickly, especially when you are butt chugging the Lord's book, <laughs> okay, and believing what these like slightly post middle aged. I don't know, monks and kings and everything else is saying. Next, we're going to go to England. So Pendle in England is where we are going to next. And the trials started in 1612. So we're up to the 17th century now. And the Pendle witch trials are probably the most famous witch trials in English history. And they're the best recorded in the 17th century. So we have very accurate and detailed historical evidence of what happened, which is kind of the most interesting part because you get a real insight into, into the zeitgeist, so to speak. So six of the Pendle witches came from one or two families. Each of these families were headed by two women, two matriarchs. It gets a little confusing. I got a little bit confused when looking into this because both of the the matriarchs' names, I mean, they're, they're all just, their names are very interchangeable, but we're going to just keep up with me. Family number one is headed by a woman called Elizabeth Southerns and her, uh, I think her her maiden name was Demdike. So she is known as Demdike. So family number one headed by Demdike. Family number two was a woman headed by a woman called Anne Whittle and her maiden name, she was also known as Chattox. So we've got Demdike and Chaddox, right? So Demdike was not the only one in her family who was accused. Her daughter Elizabeth was and her grandchildren, James and Alison. Then we have Anne Chaddox and her daughter Anne were also accused of being witches. So the outbreaks of witchcraft in and around Pendle kind of suggests that, you know, it's kind of what we talked about earlier, that there were was a tradition, an accepted tradition of people in this area making a living and working as traditional healers, using herbal medicine and kind of chal- talisman and charms and, you know, being open to these kind of more traditional and possibly pagan origin uh, ways of healing and helping people. And, you know, if you're making a, if you're making a living from it, it means people also went to you for this service so it was probably with you know Christianity it probably wasn't loved but you know one of those traditions that people kind of turned a blind eye of. Now Lancaster which is where Pendle is apparently at the time was a notoriously troublesome area. Apparently the king's court found it impossible to control there was a quote that said fabled for its theft violence and sexual laxity where the church was honoured without much understanding of its doctrines by the common people. So the people they were a little bit wild and the area was also apparently full of Catholics so many Catholics fled London and the bigger cities when King Henry did his whole thing where he was like "Mm, I really want to stop like beheading my wives so like I'm just going to change the entire country's religion so that uh, I can divorce them rather than kill them so that kind of lays the ground a bit of the cultural context we have town full of Catholics we have a town full of crazy Catholics and a lot of these Catholics were also still carrying on traditions of working as healers so Demdike the first matriarch she had been regarded in the area as a witch for 50 years she was an older woman and she was kind of you know people just thought of her as a witch but nothing really came of it 21st of March 1612 is when shit starts to happen, guys, okay? Demdike's granddaughter, Alison, cursed a peddler who wouldn't give her any pins. Now, it should be noted, we spoke about it earlier, the kinds of women who these accusations tend to be against are not your wealthy 
good fortune women. In fact, Demdike, although she was like this healer and stuff, Alison and her family, they were beggars. They were very, very poor. So she was out begging and tried to get this peddler to give her pins. Now the peddler in front of her collapsed and his son reported this collapsing to a very ambitious local magistrate uh, who became extremely famous within these witch trials called Roger Nowell. So he claims that when his grandfather wouldn't give the pins, Alison put a curse on him and said that she's putting the curse on the devil and he collapsed in front of him. Half of his face apparently was left paralyzed as well as having some paralysis throughout his body. Now, modern day interpretations kind of think like, okay, I think he probably had a badly timed stroke. But no, no, no. His grandson was like, which bitch went to Roger Nell told him. Now apparently pins is an interesting caveat. Pins were commonly used for healing purposes back in the day and they were also used for divination and love spells which could be why the grandfather didn't want to sell her or give her these pins. The worst thing about it was that Alison seemed to be convinced about her own powers and the next day she went to his bedside and confessed and begged for his forgiveness for her witchy witchy ways. Now Alison Device, she is Demdike's granddaughter and her mother Elizabeth and her brother James were summoned then to appear before Roger Nowell on the 30th of March 1612. Because they're like, okay, Alison's admitted it. Uh, Roger is hearing this. And he is, as I said, he's a magistrate who basically was on a mission to prosecute as many Catholics and witches as possible. So he's like, two birds, one stone, let's go. So Alison confessed right there on the spot that she sold her soul to the devil. And she said that she told him to name John Law after he called her a thief. Her brother James said that his sister also confessed to bewitching a local child. So the rumours are flying. Now this is where it kind of gets confusing, right? So Noel began questioning Alison about another family who had been rumoured witches in the area that he had heard about. And that happened to be the Chattox family. So they had nothing to do with this at the beginning whatsoever. But apparently these two families had a long-standing rivalry and really bad blood. So, I mean, she basically was like, what do you think of this other family who I think are witches? And she was like, I am throwing them to the wolves. And that she did. So Alison decided to take revenge. And she accused the Chattoxes of murdering four men by witchcraft and killing her own father, John Device, who had died in 1601. So this is where the little bit of witchiness, but also kind of small town infighting comes in. So she says that her father had been terrified of Anne Chaddocks because she was a witch, obviously, and that he agreed to give her eight pounds of oatmeal each year in return she would leave them alone, basically, and not hurt his family. Now, every single year, he gave this oatmeal to the Chaddocks family without fail in order to keep his family safer, so he thought. But the year he died, he forgot to give the oatmeal. And apparently, on his deathbed, 
He said that the sickness that he has has been caused by the Chaddock's family because he didn't pay for the protection. Now, this was like music to Neville's ears. He was like, oh my God, give me more witchiness, you know. But he arrested Alison. He arrested the grandmother, Demdike, as well as her neighbours, Anne Chaddock's, and her granddaughter, Anne Redfern. So we've got the two grannies and the two granddaughters. All of them in chains in some horrific... 17th century prison. I mean, you can only imagine. So Demdike and Chaddox, right? We are not talking like nifty little nannies. They were both blind at this point and in their 80s. And they both provided Nell with very damaging confessions, these two older women. Demdike said that she had given her soul to the devil 20 years ago. And Chaddox said that she gave her soul to a thing like a Christian man on his promise that she would not lack anything and would get any revenge she desired. So she roundabout way said, I also sold my soul to the devil. So the grannies then start accusing each other um, and each other's granddaughters of all sorts. Like the accusations are flying left, right and centre. The girls are fighting. <laughs> They're all trying to outwitch each other. But I mean, I laugh, but it, you know, it's it's a sad fucking story. So in his book, let's go back to um, King James. King James wrote in his book, Demonology, he wrote... Children, women and liars can be witnesses over high treason against God. And this influenced the justice system so much when it came to witch trials. And it led to Nell using a nine-year-old girl as his key witness in this case. So the clerk of the court was a man called Thomas Potts and he wrote a book all about the no- of the notes of what he made in the trial. So it's a really great first-hand account of what happened here. And it became a bestseller like right after the trial and spread the story all over the place. So this was, this was historic before it was really history, if you know what I mean. So in his book, he recounted how Jeanette's mother, Elizabeth Demdike's daughter, screamed bloody murder apparently when she saw her daughter enter the court. I mean, as you can imagine, it's your nine-year-old daughter. And Jeanette demanded that her mother be removed. When her mother was removed from the court, she climbed on a table and calmly denounced her as a witch. As I said, Jeanette was nine years old. But her evidence was so convincing that the whole jury believed her and after a two-day trial, all of her family and most of her neighbors were found guilty of causing death or harm by witchcraft. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Like, insane. So, I mean, it reminds me of satanic panic so much, right? Like, kids admitting this stuff and, like, giving these confessions. And, and because the people that are trying to prosecute want to believe their story so much, they just, like, take... Like, when else in history have, like, these powerful men ever listened to children and women? Never. But when it comes to witches, they're like, we believe you in full. <laughs> So um, she spoke of witchcraft gathering that was held in her house, apparently. And she named six people that she saw there, including her, their mother and their brother. On August 20th, 1612, 10 condemned prisoners, including all of Jeanette's family and some of her neighbours, were taken to the moors above the town, still known as Gallows Hill, and all hanged. So the people who died that day were Alison Device, Elizabeth Device, James Device, Anne Whittle, Anne Redfern, Jane Bullcock, John Bullcock, Alice Nutter and Catherine Hewitt all killed. So she basically sent all of her family and another family to their own death, right? And this is a poor family, so there would really be no... I mean, not that there's ever a massive motive to have them all killed, but like, you know what I mean? She wasn't getting anything out of it. She was just a child, but but her life did not end up very well. Let me tell you, she ended up, oh God, having a pretty tragic life. So they were all found guilty, as we know. 20 years later, in November 1633, a boy called Edmund Robinson accused Jeanette and 16 others of witchcraft. They were found guilty by a jury, but the judges weren't happy with the physical evidence and they demanded some. Now, Edmund eventually admitted that he was lying because of the stories he heard about the Pendle Witch Trials. And that's the thing. It's like when these trials were successful and when people did meet their ultimate demise from a witch trial, like it showed people that if you just accused people of something... When the masses believe you, they get killed and you're kind of vindicated and it's an easy way to get rid of your enemies. Um, Obviously an insane route to take. <laughs> Talk about the nuclear option, but it fucking happened and it happened a lot. Now, after his admission, uh, the jury was basically like, okay, we need to get rid of this. And Jeanette was acquitted, as were the other people. But she wasn't allowed leave Lancaster Castle, where she was being held in jail, until she paid for her board for the entire time she spent there. And for someone like Jeanette, that would have been a life sentence in and of itself. There was no way she would have been able to pay that off. So she either would have just been in debt for the rest of her life, working as a slave or of some kind, or kept in prison. I'm not really sure. I think that's when the, the, the records of her do run dry around this year. So she, it's quite possible she could have died quite um, in prison or quite soon after this at the age of like 29. So, so crazy how two families' distaste for each other or two families' rivalry can end in something like that. Like, it just seems, it seems completely unbelievable. But if there's anything I've learned from looking into this and also just seeing other cases of satanic panic and all the rest, like, it happens and it happens a lot. Now, Obviously, we're going to talk about the big one, the doozy, and that is the Salem 
witch trials. Salem witch trials to me are, I don't know what it is. I think it's that episode of Sabrina, guys. I'm not joking. Like the Salem witch trials, for some reason, fascinate me. Now, I never knew the actual succession of events that happened. Really, I knew there were women being accused of being a witch and I thought they were burnt at the stake. Apparently not. And I um, definitely thought there was more people died than that 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 did which I guess is kind of a good thing but they are extremely infamous and um, they're obviously the most modern that we're talking about today so the Salem witch trials happened in 1692 I think they bled slightly into 1693 at some point and there is a huge 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 amount of documentation on it and um, a lot of history on it and I obviously had to select only some you know I couldn't do them all I wish I could because they're so damn juicy but Salem witch trials, they occurred in colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693. More than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft, the devil's magic as it was known, and 20 people were executed. There are a lot of like, you know, rumors, people kind of put a lot of this down to ergot poisoning or cephalitis. Now, ergot poisoning, you will remember we spoke about around this time last year, maybe November. Ergot was basically this mold that was found in bread. And when the mold came about, when the bread was rotten, it would release lysergic acid, LSD, in your brain. And people think that the dancing plague, I think it's of 1543, they think that was because of ergot poisoning. That definitely could have been. I don't think that the witch trials were because there is so much historical evidence of other witch trials. Like, I mean, I think in Germany, they killed like 2000 people, like all over Europe, really all over Europe before the Salem witch trials. So witch hunting, witch trials, they were very much um, a central point uh, in very Christian areas at the time. And, you know, as I said, that book Demonology had a huge impact. And so did the book uh, The Hammer of Witches, which we spoke about earlier from the 15th century. So, you know, witchcraft, sorcery all of these things very much seen as heresy not godly etc etc eventually the colony admitted that the trials were a mistake and compensated the families of those convicted and since then the story of the trials have become synonymous with paranoia injustice uh, misogyny and it continues to fascinate pretty much anyone who looks at it. I mean, like, I don't know how you can't be interested in the Salem Witch Trials. I think it is so fascinating. 300 years on, it does not lose its spice. It's not so crazy in the sense that you're like, imagine that happening. Look at QAnon people. Look at Satanic Panic. Like, that's the real conspiracy. You know, like, when you look at Satanic Panic, especially, to me, Satanic Panic was the real doozy because you have you know, multiple people being arrested and put in jail, young teenagers or older teenagers being put in jail for like some of the most heinous crimes known to man. Like, let's bring it all back for a little bit and talk about Salem as a place, its history and the people because it's really, really integral to this story. In 1689, the English rulers, William and Mary, started a war with France in the American colonies, okay? It was called King William's War And it ravaged the regions where it took place, which was in upstate New York, Nova Scotia, Quebec. And it basically what happened was it displaced a lot of the settlers there. Okay, so a lot of the people who had come there for a better life, mainly to practice their religion, known as the Puritans, they were refugees 
and they had to get on their feet and get the fuck out of there and they they came to a place called Essex specifically they came to Salem so the dispatch people created a strain on Salem's resources because there was Salem town and Salem village and now they've got all these new people coming in and you know it's a lot of people they're traumatized from war etc etc they didn't have many resources anyway it's a very new country at this point with the settlers there and also going on in the background was that a man called Reverend Samuel Paris. He was Salem Village's first ordained minister, but this guy was not liked. People did not like him. He he was the minister, he was a reverend, but he was disliked because he was extre- seen as extremely rigid. And like, let me tell you, if a Puritan thinks you are rigid, and they also saw him as greedy, and that would go very, very much against what the Puritans held to be godly. So, you know, kind of hypocritical. You're you're a reverend, you're greedy, no thank you. Salem was also a very small town. Very similar to Pendle, very similar to the towns in Scotland as well. Small town shit. They, they've all been forced to flee. They probably had to flee together in some way. Um, and they're fighting, they're tired, they're fed up. I mean, some of these people have literally come from the UK over to practice their religion. Like they've already left the UK. You know what I mean? Now they had to have left their second home after being on a boat for months. The tensions are high, okay? And what was that faith? Let's talk about it. So Puritans are a member of a religious reform movement known as Puritanism that basically arose in the UK in the late 16th century. And Puritans believed that, mainly they believed that the Church of England took too many derivatives from Catholicism. They they didn't feel like the uh, Reformation within the Church of England was succinct enough or it didn't suffice. They didn't think it was far enough away from Catholicism as they wished it to be. And they also believed and um, they had this very specific belief around what was going to happen when you die or when what's that when God comes back I'm sorry I'm not very religious but they believe basically that God is going to choose a very very few people for salvation um on d-day or god why can't i remember that name they thought that like five percent of people are going to get into heaven the rest are going to burn in hell and they called the few people that would get it the elect and they as i said thought the rest of humanity was going to be condemned to this eternal damnation but no one really knew if they were going to be saved or if they were going to be damned so they lived in this constant state of religious anxiety and terror really thinking I'm not godly enough like they had no idea what was godly because they thought it was so few people their life became this rat race (laughs) kind of like we're rat racing against capitalism they were just all about god okay it was pray 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 and you better believe you better pray enough and how they lived their life also was very very reserved very you know not no music all of these things everything was a sin you know other than just basically praying being quiet being hardworking, and doing the lord's work the Puritan villagers also believed that like quarreling and fighting was the work of the devil. And as I said, they had just come down here and there was a lot of fighting going on. So they were probably quite paranoid that the devil was having some sort of impact on their um, community as it was. As I said, their lives super strict. They really were encouraged to be nothing more, as I said, than quiet, hardworking, God-fearing people. Like God-fearing is really the best way to describe the Puritans. They were very obedient, very well-mannered and specifically to women and 
and children. Women and children really were expected to be seen and not heard. Uh, women were obviously having a very traditional role in the household. Children basically don't come near me, don't talk, obey. It would be very literal with the Ten Commandments. So a really famous Puritan is this man, mad old name, guys, mad old name. His name was Cotton Mathers. And I believe his father was called Increase Mathers. Imagine your name being Increase. What a strange name. But anyway, he was basically an influencer back in the day. He became the most celebrated of all New England Puritans. And he wrote a book called The Essay for the Recording of Illustrious Providences in 1684. In this book, it was basically a collection of short stories that showed divine intervention, saving people from the works of the devil and witchcraft. So many historians do think that this book really conditioned the mind of the Puritans for the witchcraft hysteria. So he's like the Alex Jones to the QAnons, right? He is like basically singing what they want to hear and he's poisoning their damn minds full of garbage. So let's talk. How did these trials, how did the trials come about? In January 1692, a group of young girls who later became known as the afflicted girls fell ill after playing, allegedly playing, a fortune teller game. And they all began to act kind of strangely. Now, this began with a girl called Betty Paris, who was Reverend Paris's daughter, and Abigail Williams, who was her cousin but lived in the house with her. So Betty Paris was nine and Abigail Williams was 11. Now they were apparently seen to be breaking into fits, spasming with their wrists turned out, screaming in pain. They were claiming their skin was being pricked with pins and you know that the devil was torturing them and This went on for apparently a matter of weeks and the Puritans really only had one bit of ammo in their back pocket and they were like, pray, 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 pray. And when they couldn't pray it away, which obviously they couldn't, they called for a doctor. Now the doctor came in and uh, the doctor was like, "Mm, okay, um, I basically have no idea what this is. It's bewitchment. So he put it down to bewitchment, which apparently wasn't that unusual at the time. Anyway, the reason why Reverend Paris would have indulged in these stories by his daughter and his niece, because remember, they did not listen to children, specifically female children. They would usually just be like, you're hysterical. And I don't know if they're in the 60s, they would have been lobotomized. But we're in the 17th century. So instead, he took them seriously because he felt that if he was able to show that the devil wanted to take him down and that the devil was basically trying to infiltrate the whole town because of his godliness like he must be the most godly man in the world if the devil is directly trying to take him and his family down soon after the two girls abigail and betty started having their fits and their seizures and all the rest alleged seizures some other young girls started acting strangely so we have anne putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard. They also started to display the same same symptoms, fits and convulsions and contorting their body and saying they could see the devil in the room and all sorts of scary, you know, exorcism of Emily Rose type of shit. Now, it's important to remember that the community didn't believe that these girls were witches. They believed that these girls were 
bewitched, not the band, but had been under the influence or being meddled with by a witch within the community. So they started to go to the girls and ask them who this witch is, who is, you know, causing all of this in our community. Now, one day, the girls, Abigail and Betty, were left alone in the care of a woman called Mary Sibley. And when they were all together, she instructed Reverend Paris's slave, who was called Tituba, and his other slave called John, to make something that was known as a witch cake. Now, a witch cake wasn't something that a witch would make. A witch cake is something that you would make to hurt a witch who is kind of, um, you know, infiltrating with your life or trying to take you down. It was it was kind of a white magic, if you if you will. So it was a little cake and apparently it was made of like some sort of rye and the urine of the afflicted person. So the girls would have peed into the cakes and then you would feed the cake to a dog and apparently when the dog would eat this, that would hurt the witch. Now, Reverend Paris heard of this and apparently he like banished Mary Sibley from all of Salem and that was the last we heard of her but a funny little side story you know just again showing that the healing and the the white magic kind of stuff it it also wasn't completely out of the ordinary for even Salem at this time it would have come over from the UK as well after this the girls are being interrogated who is the witch and they name three people they name Tituba who is Reverend Paris's slave they name a woman called Sarah Osborne and they name another woman called Sarah Good. So as usual, the women who were discussed and accused were not exactly the highest society women going. So Tichiba, as I said, she was a slave. <laughs> she is the lowest of the low in this world at the time. Now, there's a lot of, um, I listened to some podcasts actually with these historians and there's some evidence that she could have been a Native American, but most historical documents list her as someone who was from the West Indies. And she was obviously an outcast of society. There was rumours she pra- practised voodoo and taught the girls the fortune telling game that they were playing but none of this has ever been confirmed it probably is just that rumors Sarah Good who they accused was a beggar and she was pregnant and she was homeless which the Puritans would have seen as immoral because they basically think that like if you're godly you don't become homeless and a beggar they think that like as long as you pray God will clap you on the back you know he'll pat you on the back and give you a good life if only it was that simple guys Sarah Osborne was kind of just known in general as like a bit of a bad bitch like and not in a good way like the Puritans did not like her she was a bit of an outcast she basically became embroiled in this like legal battle when her husband died um she inherited the land um but the deal was that she had to give the land to his sons when his sons became of age but she married this Irish indentured slave and then she started to keep all the land for herself and her new hubby so she was basically just the, you know a, a center of controversy and gossip and they also would have seen that as quite greedy um back in the puritan time so she wasn't seen she wasn't looked at nicely so tituba was brought in for examination all the women were arrested first of all they were all arrested and put in a disgusting jail so but tituba's examination was the most damning thing because she made a confession that she had been approached by Satan himself along with Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne and that they had all been doing his bidding as witches. So her confession was the trigger that sparked everything. 
all the mass hysteria and the hunt for more witches in Salem because it basically was confirmation bias, right? The girls were having the fits. Reverend Paris sings the devils after him. It turns out it's in his own home with his own slave. It was basically like this perfect combination of hysteria and bigotry that just it kicked off everything and obviously don't get me wrong it is not hard to see why Tichipa would have admitted to this like she was probably threatened there's rumors that Reverend Paris beat the confession out of her and it's not like she had a leg to stand on she was already the lowest denominator in all of Salem's social standing so maybe she was told if she tells them who the other witches are she'll get off I mean I think we can see through this whole episode that these false confessions, they don't mean anything. There's a, a multiple reasons as to why people falsely confess this stuff. It's very hard to imagine. I still am like, what the hell? It seems bizarre to me, but I know it is a thing. So Tidjibit accused the other women of being a witch and this actually helped keep her alive throughout all of the trials because they basically kind of relied on her as like the token witch kind of. Like she wasn't like the slave anymore. She was the token witch and whenever they needed to ask her questions on like what happened, they basically went to Tichiba. So the three women remained in jail. Now, these jails were horrific. They would have been wet and cold with rats and disease. Like, you know what I mean? No jail is ever nice, but these ones especially were horrific. No sunlight, nothing. Mass hysteria is spreading. And very soon, some upstanding citizens begin to be accused, which this kind of opened the floodgates, you know, it can kind of go both ways. When this happens, I think it happened in Scotland as well. And this is when people were kind of going, ah, nah, she can't be a witch. She's too good. But in Salem, it basically made them be like, oh my God, if she can be a witch, anyone could be a witch. Soon, Sarah Good, one of the women who's in jail, her daughter, Dorothy Good, who was only four years old, was arrested and interrogated and put into jail. She spent nine months in jail as a four-year-old. Now, according to the book, The Salem Witch Trials Reader, 18 years later, her father, William Good, was to write that she was in prison seven or eight months and being chained in the dungeon and was so hardly used and terrified that she hath ever since been very chargeable, having little or no reason to govern herself. By very chargeable, he meant a financial burden and that means that when she came out for the rest of her days he had to pay a keeper to take care of her that is how damaged she was from being locked up in the end more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft and the jails were absolutely packed full of suspects because they kept them in there the whole time and the the accusations were running rampant like it was 200 people in a small town that's crazy like if there was 200 people in my town in Malahide like in jail locally in Malahide Castle like for something as insane as witchcraft like it just blows my mind it really is so crazy so basically they had to make their own specific court for the witch trials because like at this point they were so new they had nothing they had to get their own specific court now the first woman who was killed is a woman called Bridget Bishop and she was basically just a woman who like had a weird sense of style and gossiped (laughs) guilty but she never admitted to being a witch she tried to get out denied it and was hung We need to start talking now about something called spectral evidence. So spectral evidence is something that they took very seriously 
And it was one of the reasons why so many people were put to death when it came to witch trials. So spectral evidence is the evidence in the form of dreams and visions. I mean, evidence and dreams, never two words you really want to hear in the same sentence, but it was admitted in their court. They were like, yes, that's all good. They actually went and checked and the guy came back and was like, look, it's obviously not ideal, but at the end of the day in this book, because I'm pretty sure in um, Demonology and a few other books and Increase Mathers book, they were like spectral evidence. It is great. So another way was obviously through confession and how did they get confession? Torture eyewitness testimonies were also used and then obviously also they had the tests so the witch's teeth (laughs) is like the mark of the devil again it was a mole so like I'm guilty I guess hands up but they um they looked for these on women's bodies as well so they were all these are all ways that they would be testing the women to see if they were uh, witches. Sarah Good, Susanna Howell, Susanna Martin, Sarah Wilde and Rebecca Nurse all went on trial and they were all found guilty and hanged in 1692 on what then became known as Gallows Hill and where all of the rest of the people who died would be hung. Sarah Good's trial was very interesting. So with the spectral evidence, we have to also realise in this court, they're trying this woman and anyone in the audience could literally just stand up and be like, oh my God, I can see. I saw her in my dream and in my dream, she told me she was a witch. That's what it was. So at one point during the trial, one of the accusers, one of these afflicted girls stood up and said that Sarah's evil spirit just stabbed her and she pulled out this knife from under her dress, like a broken blade off a knife. And she was going, oh my God. And obviously people were shocked because this is kind of like almost physical evidence until a young man in court was like, "Uh, no, that's my blade. I broke it off my knife and I threw it out into the, the middle of the town or somewhere yesterday. But this didn't turn people off. They were kind of like, oh, oh, okay. Even though she had just been proven to be lying in front of the court. So at this point, as I said, we have 200 people in jail. These jails are filthy. They are rotten. They are windowless, wet and cold. So the people are beaten down. They are, you know, they're traumatized, truly. So although many of the other accused women were very unpopular and social outcasts, Rebecca Nurse was actually a really like pious and well-respected woman. She was a well-loved member of the community and her initial verdict was actually not guilty. But upon hearing the verdict, the afflicted girls who were in court began having fits in the courtroom and the judge asked the jury to then reconsider their verdict. And a week later, the jury charged her and declared her fully guilty. Now, it was not only women who were affected by the witch trials. As I said earlier, in a lot of the cases in the UK, um, the men who were accused of being witches were like usually gay or suspected to be gay or just people who had a grudge. And the grudge thing is really what was long lasting, especially in Salem. So many of the men were just basically involved in longstanding beef. They had beef. People had beef with them and they just turned that beef into witchery. So... One man called John Proctor was one of these men, okay? And his wife was actually one of the first people to be accused of a witch. And he believed it at first. He was like, burn the witch, burn my wife. 
Um, but after a while, he then became accused based on spectral evidence. And that's when he was all of a sudden like, oh, okay. I mean, it always happens to ha- has to happen to them before they believe you. Isn't that right? But whatever. So July 23rd, John wrote to the clergy in Boston and he knew that the clergy did not fully approve of the witch ones that were going on anyway. And he started to tell them about the torture that was inflicted on the people um, and asked that the trials be moved to Boston because he felt like they would get a more fair trial in Boston. Now, the proctors were actually both tried on August 5th, 1692, and they were both found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. As far as I'm aware, his wife actually escaped jail, but he did end up dying in the gallows before he could get uh, a new trial in Boston. Another man who had a very crazy story is a guy called Giles Corey. So he refused to plead. He was just, again, accused on spectral evidence. No no real meat to his accusations whatsoever, but however. And he basically owned a lot of land. And if you were arrested back then, your land and everything would be seized off you and you would lose it. But he had two sons and he did not want this to happen. So what he did was he refused to plead either way. He didn't plead guilty and he didn't plead innocent. And at that time in Massachusetts, if you didn't have a plea, you couldn't be tried. So this was a bit of a, a, you know, a bit of a problem for the prosecution at the time until they realized, hold on, we can just torture a plea out of him, of course. So they put him on, they stripped him naked and they put him under a board, which was weighed down by rocks. And the rocks kept getting heavier and heavier to the point where they were just basically crushing you, crushing a plea out of you. And apparently every single time that he was asked a question or asked to plead guilty or innocent or whatever else, all he said was more weight. Uh, he died under the weight, but his land remained in the family. So at around the end of September, so this started in January, right, with the girls, we're up to September and the use of spectral evidence was finally kind of being seen as a bit of bullshit. (laughs) Nine months later, they're like, do you know what? Dreams. Don't really think they're solid evidence. And this kind of began the end of the Salem witch trials. So it should be noted that, that the spectral evidence, it wasn't obviously the only piece of evidence that was being used. Obviously, we had, you know, very, very reliable stuff like the water test and does she have a mole and does she own a cat? Um, All of those things were also used. But spectral evidence was the most common, probably because it was the easiest. But anyway, on September 22nd, eight more people were hung and they were the last hangings in the Salem witch trials. All in all, a total of 19 accused witches were hanged at Proctor's Ledge near Gallows Hill during the witch trials. Four of the accused died in jail. Ten of the accused escaped from jail. And although there was 200 people, like, remember that poor girl who was four years old and locked up? These were There were so many children. There were older people. None of these people who were, like, kept in jail for this whole time, like, they didn't have bail. They were not okay when they got out. Not at all. Even two dogs were shot and killed for being witches. And the dogs got the bullet in the head when we got home. Like, come on. The remaining people who were in jail, like they, they might have been found guilty or they might have been found not guilty, but they were all pardoned and they were never indicted or they just basically evaded arrest and escaped jail. And that was kind of the end of it. So histor- historians suspect like a multitude of reasons as to why 
this happened and why people were getting confused. Some of it was like some people were wealthy and then the state could repossess their land. There was differing religious beliefs as well because there was different like levels within Puritanism and there was a lot of competition and some people were maybe a little bit more Church of England. You know, it was it was a very, it was a mishmash of people. There was a lot of infighting, you know, a lot of drama. These people, as I said, have some of them have come over from the UK and I mean, very hard lives, don't get me wrong, but you know, there was a lot of drama within the community and people also think that there was influence by senior members of society like Reverend Paris. He really makes me think that he was he was up to all sorts, in my opinion. I do think that he set up the two girls, Abigail and Betty, to begin this um, or at least when he caught them possibly playing this game they knew a way around to manipulate him and he had that confirmation bias where he was kind of thinking like okay like I am just going to go with this because not only does it make me look godly but it can maybe get rid of some of my bad reputation really as being a non-godly guy and he didn't care if his his poor slave woman was collateral damage in this um it really just seems though to me that we have just been out here accusing each other of baby eating and satanic worship and all of this kind of stuff for much longer than we thought. Like, I mean, I know we all, even when people talk about satanic panic or whatever else, they talk about it as a witch, tri- witch trial, but seeing the parallels in societies across countries, across oceans, constantly happening, it's so interesting to me how that can constantly happen. I mean, and it just, you know, keep, stay woke, guys. Keep your minds out there because... It's so, it seems to be so easy to just happen so quickly. And now with the internet, I mean, I don't think we're going to be burning people at the stake anymore, but I mean, Jesus Christ, you never know what way society is going to go. Oh, okay, guys, that is it for this week's episode, this week's spooky little episode. Stay spooky. Stay spooky.